محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, today is the second to last seerah that uh, we have and all things must come to an end uh, so today will be our last Wednesday seerah uh, our final will be on Saturday this Saturday inshallah ta'ala uh, and so today we discuss uh, the incident of the Hajjatul Wada' or the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And there's quite a lot of uh, material to discuss in this particular uh, section. So let us begin immediately. When did Allah reveal the obligation for Hajj? When did Allah reveal the obligation for Hajj? This is actually a very difficult question, and it has a fiqhi uh, analogous, if you like, problem or scenario, and that is, can a person delay Hajj once they're qualified to go? Uh, can they delay it for a few years? This is a classical controversy. So if you say that you can delay it for a few years, so of the evidences that group uses is that Hajj was revealed a few years before the process and went for Hajj. So he delayed it a few years. And the other opinion is that no, Hajj was revealed. The ayah of Hajj came down basically in the ninth year of the Hijrah, and so the Prophet ﷺ could, uh, 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 in the early part of the tenth year or the later ninth year, and so the Prophet ﷺ only went as soon as Allah revealed the obligation for Hajj. So you understand there's a bit of a controversy, and this controversy ling li lingers on to the four madahib. Must you go for Hajj as soon as you're financially capable? Or are you allowed to wait for a future year of your life thinking that, inshallah, I'll be alive next year, the year after that? This is a classic controversy from the uh, beginning of time, and this goes back to as well, when did Allah reveal the obligation for Hajj? And Ibn al-Qayyim and many of the scholars, they follow the opinion that it is not allowed to delay the Hajj once you have the means to do so. So they also then say, when was Hajj, the ayah of Hajj, when did it come down? In the beginning of the 10th year. So as soon as the ayah came down, according to them, the Prophet then went for Hajj in the same year. And the fact of the matter is we really don't know for sure when the ayah came down. And also, historically speaking, the bulk of the Muslim world has not gone for Hajj the same year that they get their means to do so. So inshallah, as long as you have a reasonable niyyah, a legitimate niyyah, that inshallah I'm going for Hajj soon inshallah, and you don't delay it forever and ever, that maybe when I'm 70, 80 years old, when you have a legitimate niyyah, then inshallah it is permissible to uh, delay the Hajj, even though it is better not to delay the Hajj. Nonetheless, there is an ikhtilaf, when did Allah reveal the verse of Hajj, and what is the verse of Hajj, Surah Ali Imran verse 97. Surah Ali Imran, verse 97, وَلِلَّهِ عَلَى النَّاسِ حِجُّ الْبَيْتِ مَنْ اسْتَطَاعَ إِلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا That mankind owes to Allah the pilgrimage to the house, whoever is able to do so. So as we said, some ulama say this ayah came down in the 10th year of the Hijrah, even though it's part of Ali Imran. And Ali Imran was revealed. When was Ali Imran revealed? No, oh, not at all. When in Medina? We've talked about this, all of the Sira guys. We've talked about this. When was Ali Imran revealed? Uhud. Uhud, at the time of Uhud. So, uh, Jabir narrates that the Prophet spent nine years not performing Hajj. And then in the tenth year of the Hijrah, uh, 
he announced he would be going for Hajj. So multitudes of people came to Medina, all of them wanting to do Hajj with the Prophet and follow his actions. And therefore, the Prophet announced a few months before or maybe even a month and a half before that he's going for Hajj. So let the people who want to come, come to do Hajj with him. So from across the country, from across the lands, people flocked to Medina. And the city swelled up. Tens of thousands of people continued to come. And even, by the way, along the way, the entire journey, tens of thousands of people continued to flock. A number of ahadith report that the Sahaba said, as far as the eye could see, we could see flocks of humanity. We looked in front, we could see nothing but men. We looked behind, we looked to the right, we looked to the left. Never in the seerah, of our Prophet did he have a larger audience? Did he have a larger group of uh, people? And as well, he began telling them, Take your rights of Hajj from me, because he only did one Hajj. He only did one Hajj, and therefore, all of the fiqh of Hajj comes from this one Hajj. All of the controversies, all of the madahib, they come from basically what did the Prophet do? How did he do it? Is it obligatory or is it sunnah or is it wajib or is it rukun? All of the controversy over one hajj of the Prophet Ibn Ishaq and others, they tell us that the Prophet left for hajj on the 25th of Dhul Qa'dah in the 10th year of the hijrah. And of course he is going to pass away on the 12th in the 11th year of the Hijrah. So it's just a few months before he وسلم, passes away. And he prayed Dhuhr in the Masjid and he then left Medina on uh, the 25th of Dhul Qa'dah in the 10th year of the Hijrah. And he made his way to Dhul Hulayfa, which is right outside Medina. And he prayed two rak'ah and entered the state of Ihram. Entered the state of Ihram. And the people uh, from the time of the Prophet began calling this Hajj, Hajjatul Wada'. The name Hajjatul Wada'a, the farewell Hajj, was given even in the lifetime of the Prophet And where did this name come from? We learn in a hadith in Sahih Muslim that Ibn Umar says that the Prophet stood on the day of sacrifice, Yawm nahr on the day of sacrifice, uh, which is of course, what is the day of sacrifice? The 10th of Dhul Hijjah. And he said, This is Hadha Yawmu Al Hajj Al Akbar. This is the day of the big Hajj, Al Hajj Al Akbar. And he kept on saying, Oh Allah, bear witness, Allahumma Fashhad, wa wadda an nas. And he was bidding farewell to the people, saying goodbye to the people. So the people began calling it, This must be the Hajjatul Wada'. This is the Hajj that he's bidding farewell. And Ibn Umar said, we did not understand the implication. They're calling it Hajjatul Wada'a. And they're not understanding what does Wada'a mean over here. Which is that? What does it mean? The process is going to pass away. They didn't, it didn't click in their minds. And they're calling Hajjatul Wada'a, Hajjatul Wada'a. And they don't understand that this means that the Prophet ﷺ is going to literally be bidding farewell. So the term Hajjatul Wada'a comes from the seerah, from the sunnah, from the actions of the Sahaba while the Prophet ﷺ uh, was still alive. And of course, as we shall discuss in our actual final seerah, our Prophet ﷺ had a premonition. He knew that this was the end. That is why he 
he's bidding farewell to the people, the tens of thousands of people. And by the way, we don't know how many people perform Hajj, so our early scholars just like to give a nice round number, 100,000. The fact of the matter is, nobody knows. Absolutely. It is just a complete guesstimation. There is no way of actually estimating how many tens of thousands of people flocked from all over Arabia, from all the tribes. And this was the largest gathering of Sahaba and the bulk of the Sahaba, we don't even know their names because that's they became Sahaba. Simply by performing Hajj with the Prophet they became Sahaba and they saw him. And we have plenty of narrations of anonymous people that we find them in the books of hadith that someone who heard the khutbah of the Prophet in Hajj says this and he becomes a Sahabi. And we don't care that he's unknown because if he heard it from the Prophet he is a reliable narrator. Someone who heard or someone who saw the Prophet it's narrated in the books of hadith. So there are tens of thousands of people, 100,000, 150,000. We do not know how many people performed the Hajj. So he left on the 25th of Dhul Qa'dah and he arrived in Mecca on the 4th of Dhul Hijjah. On the 4th of Dhul Hijjah and this is 10 days exact. And it would take 10 days on average for a large caravan that is going at an average speed. Not too slow, not too fast. It would take 10 days from Mecca, from Medina to Mecca or from Mecca to Medina. And so our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, camped outside of Mecca. He arrived at night. He camped outside of Mecca. It was not his sunnah to enter any city at night. We've discussed this before. And also for Adab, for the Kaaba, as we will, uh, as he did not want to enter it in a tired state. He rested. He woke up in the morning, prayed Fajr, and then took a ghusl in the state of Ihram. So this shows us that in the state of Ihram, you're allowed to take a ghusl. Obviously, this is well known. There's no ikhtilaf over here. And he then entered Mecca. Uh, in the daytime, early morning, he entered Mecca on uh, the on the morning of the Sunday. On the morning of the Sunday, and he performed the tawaf, the first three of them quickly, and then the rest of the four slowly. And of course, the people performed with him. And then he announced a change or a, a twist in the plans. And he said, "If I had known then at the beginning of my journey what I know now." I would not have made the niyyah of combining the Hajj and Umrah. And I would have made the niyyah of tamattu' of separating the Hajj and Umrah. And I would not have brought my animals with me. In other words, he has now changed his mind, but he cannot act upon that change of mind. Now, what is this little bit of fiqh here? If you have your animals with you in the Sharia, those animals are sacred animals in Hajj. Now this is very rare in our times who brings animals with them, right? This is very rare to bring animals with you. So when you enter Ihram, you will then uh, consecrate your animals. This is basically you put some decorations and something on it and those animals, you don't ride them and you basically treat them as gifts for the hujjaj and you take them with you and you then distribute to the poor. You must remain in Ihram until those animals are distributed. Okay, so our Prophet had told Ali uh, to bring 100 camels from Yemen. So this also shows you don't have to physically bring the animal, but your niyyah is this is the animal with me. So he when he got to Mecca said, you know, if I had knew then what I know now, which is an Arabic expression, basically, uh, uh, if I knew better, if I thought about this more, I would have actually done something else. 
And what would he have done? Hajj tamattu'. What is Hajj tamattu'? You do the Umrah, then you get out of Ihram, then you remain in Mecca without Ihram until the 8th, then you re-enter Ihram, and then you do a Hajj. So he announced to the people, everybody who came without their animals, get out of your Ihram, and become Halal again, i.e. Haram, Ihram, and Halal are two different things, the opposite. Get out of your Ihram and become Halal again. Now this was unique and new. This is not something pre-Islam had allowed. And this was new. And some of the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, how can we become Halal again? Do you expect us to even be intimate with our families? They had brought their families with them. And the Prophet said, yes, everything is Halal. Everything is Halal. So this was un... Uh, they couldn't imagine basically getting out of Ihram in between Hajj and Umrah. This was, I'm sorry, Umrah and Hajj. Because that was not something that pre-Islam had done, and this is something Islam came with. And Aisha narrated that, so therefore, some people made the intention for both Hajj and Umrah together. This is Quran. And some people made it only for Umrah, at that time meaning Umrah and then Hajj. And some people made it only for the Hajj. And this is Ifrad. And this hadith is in Bukhari. And from this we get the famous everybody who has been for Hajj. And those of you who haven't, you should know this by now because this is common knowledge. There are three types of Hajj. Hajj Qiran, Hajj Ifrad, Hajj Tamattu'. All three types pretty much are Ja'iz. And there's a controversy which one is better. But all three are Ja'iz. Our Prophet performed Qiran. But he clearly told the Sahaba to do Tamattu'. And some of them also did Ifrad. So very briefly, tamattu', you do the Umrah, you get out of Ihram, then you enter Ihram and you do Hajj. Umrah and Hajj, two separate acts, one journey. Qiran, Umrah and Hajj, two acts, one journey, one Ihram. You don't get out. So you stay in Ihram for all of those days, which is what our Prophet did. And then Ifrad, you don't do Umrah, you just go straight to the Hajj. And that's also allowed. So all of these three, some of the Sahaba did, uh, some of them. And as I had said, Ali uh, was in Yemen. I already talked about Ali being in Yemen a few lessons ago. Ali had been sent to Yemen to be a judge, a arbitrator, a, dis a dispute settler amongst them. And he then sent word to Ali, bring 100 camels from Yemen and meet me in Mecca for the Hajj. And so Ali arrived with an entourage, he came with a group of people, and uh, he uh, came with the 100 camels, and he immediately entered into the tent of uh, Fatima, radiallahu anha, because he had not been with Fatima for a long time, to say salam to her, now Ali is in Ihram. So if they're in Ihram, obviously, then everything is not allowed. But then she sees Fatima, and she's wearing normal clothes, and she's perfumed, and she has kuhl in her eyes. And he gets angry at her, he says, what are you doing? We're doing Hajj. How can you be dressed normally? So she says, my father, the Prophet told me to get out of Ihram. And this is news to him. So he marches to the Prophet and he says, Ya Rasulullah, Fatima you know, is dressed with this and this and she said, you told her to do this. And so he's confused, like what is going on here? I thought we're doing Hajj. So the Prophet said, yes, he, she has spoken the truth. I commanded them to get out of Ihram, and you as well, you can get out of, of Ihram. Which niyyah did you come with? Because if you came with the niyyah of doing Hajj, uh, with the niyyah of uh, basically only doing Hajj, it's okay. Your niyyah for only doing Hajj can then be, become tamattu', so you can get out of Ihram. So Ali said, Ya Rasulullah, when I came from Yemen, I said, Labbaik upon the niyyah of the Prophet. 
But wallahi, this shows us really the status of Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? That he didn't know what to say. So he said, whatever the process I'm doing, I'm doing it. So that basically meant Quran. He's going to stay in a haram. He's going to stay in a haram because he said, I'm upon your niyyah, ya Rasulullah. And so Ali also stayed in a haram throughout that uh, time. And the bulk of the Sahaba ended up doing tamattu'. Some of them did ifrad, those that came later especially, they just did ifrad. And a very small few, those that had brought their animals with them, they ended up doing qiran and amongst them was our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So our Prophet entered uh, Mecca, uh, so I, uh, sorry I made a mistake, he camped outside of Mecca on the Saturday, he entered Mecca on the Sunday. I said he camped on Saturday, Sunday, no, he camped Saturday. He entered Mecca Sunday morning. And he did tawaf Sunday morning. And he stayed in Mecca Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Four full days he stayed in Mecca. And then on the morning of Thursday, which was the 8th of Dhul Hijjah, he prayed Fajr in the Kaaba, and he then made his way towards Mina. And from here, the books of, of Seerah and the books of Hadith all mention hundreds of narrations of he did this in Hajj, he did that in Hajj, and that is more befitting of a fiqh class. Every single Hadith of fiqh pertaining to Hajj takes place now. You can imagine. All of the Hadith of the fiqh of Hajj takes place now. We have literally hundreds, entire books in the collections of Hadith, and the bulk of them deal with fiqh. There's one hadith that is considered to be the mother of all hadith when it comes to the hajj of the Prophet and that is the hadith of Jabir. That is the hadith of Jabir. Why? Because it is the longest. It is actually three, four pages long. And I'm just going to quickly go over it just to be uh, thorough. Most of this is more fiqhi related, so I'm not going to unpack it because it really deals with the fiqh of the hajj. We are more concerned with the spiritual and the moral aspects of the seerah of the Prophet in this uh, regard. So, um, it is, this is the hadith of Jabir from Sahih Muslim. Uh, in Sahih Muslim, uh, in the hadith of Jabir, it is reported by Ja'far ibn Muhammad and Ja'far ibn Muhammad from the Al Bayt, the famous Ja'far ibn Muhammad, that from his father, uh, that we went to Jabir ibn Abdullah and he began asking about who all of us were until it was my turn. So this is Muhammad. Jabir, uh, Ja'far ibn Muhammad is reporting from his father, Muhammad. And this is, who is this Muhammad? This is Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Hussein ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib. This is the Al al-Bayt. Okay? This is Ja'far ibn Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Hussein ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali ibn Hussein ibn Ali. Hussein's father is Ali and Hussein's son is Ali. Okay? And of course, for the 12 Shias, these are their Imams. All of these are their Imams. Ja'far al-Sadiq and Muhammad al-Baqir and Ali Zain al-Abideen, these are the same people. And from our perspective, they are extremely righteous people and of the best people of, on earth alive at their time, but they don't have powers uh, and attributes that other groups give them. So this is Muhammad that is called Muhammad al-Baqir, Muhammad ibn Ali ibn al-Husayn. So I was a young man at the time. This is the great, great, great grandson of the Prophet And Jabir ibn Abdullah was one of the last Sahaba to die. Uh, SubhanAllah, I should know his date. Wallahi, so sad. Forgot his date now. It's 76 or something around that time. 70 something for sure. Uh, uh, Jabir ibn Abdullah was one of the last of the Sahaba to die. And at this point in time, he was a blind old man. He was a blind old man. So when I said I am Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Hussein, what not? So he stood up, he placed his hand on my head and he opened up his blind. 
He opened up my shirt and he touched me. Like he wants to touch the great grandson of the Prophet Like he wants to feel and also to bless him and to get blessings from him. So, and he touched me. And he then said, ask what you want. You are welcome, my nephew. So he's showing respect to the Al-Al Bayt. And it is a part of Sunni Islam, as I have said throughout, to respect the Al-Al Bayt, those who are righteous amongst them. Ask whatever you want. And the hadith goes on. And uh, eventually he says, tell me about the Hajj of the Prophet So this is the great-great-grandson of the Prophet asking Jabir ibn Abdullah, tell me about the Hajj of the Prophet So Jabir begins his long hadith. I'm going to quickly go over it. So Jabir pointed out with nine fingers. He's blind. He put up nine fingers. And he said, for nine years, the Prophet did not perform the Hajj. Then he made an announcement in the 10th year that he was about to perform the Hajj. So large numbers of people came to Medina, all of them eager to follow the Prophet ﷺ and to be behind him as he did the Hajj. Can you imagine the excitement that who is going to lead the caravan? It is none other than Rasulullah ﷺ. So we reached uh, Dhul Hulayfa and Asma. Uh, Binti Umais uh, gave birth to Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. Uh, so Abu Bakr had married Asma. And Asma, we talked about Asma, by the way, many, many seerahs ago. She was married to so many Sahaba. So she gives birth to the final son of Abu Bakr. This is Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. Okay, so she gives birth and she sends a message to the Prophet What should I do? I just given birth, basically I'm bleeding. So the Prophet said, take a bath, bandage your private parts and put on ihram. Uh, so you can enter ihram, women can enter ihram in their monthly cycle and in their uh, postpartum bleeding, they can enter ihram. Okay, so when they pass the miqat, they still enter ihram, even though they cannot pray and they cannot do tawaf, but they still enter ihram. So again, all of this is, is fiqh. So the Prophet then prayed in Dhul Hulayfa, then mountain on Qaswa, and it stood with him with his back to Al-Bayda, which is one of the valleys. And I saw as far as I could see in front of me, nothing but riders and pedestrians. And to my right, nothing but riders and pedestrians. And to my left, nothing but riders and pedestrians. And behind me as well, the same. And the Prophet ﷺ was prominent amongst us, meaning he was the middle. He was in the middle on his camel. He was the prominent amongst us. And, and he's reminiscing and he must feel all of the memories coming back. So he says, and the Quran was still coming down. So he's telling, this is now 70 years afterwards, right? So he's saying the Quran was still being revealed at that time. So he himself is getting excited that those days are bringing him nostalgic memories, that the Quran was still being revealed. And he was the most knowledgeable of the Quran, meaning I wish he was still here, we could ask him uh, questions. And whatever he did, we followed him in all that he did. And he was, and when he got on his camel, he said, Allahu Akbar, la ilaha illallah, labbayk Allahumma labbayk, labbayk la sharika laka labbayk, inna alhamda, wa ni'mata laka wal mulk. And he said other people also pronounced it, other talbiyas and the Prophet did not say anything to them. So they had slight variations as well. And all of this was praise of Allah. And these are mentioned in the books of Sunnah. And that is all uh, fine. And he said, we did not have any niyyah other than the Hajj. We weren't knowledgeable of doing Umrah and Hajj. So he didn't understand Tamattu. But when we came with him to the house, to the Kaaba, 
He touched the black stone and made seven tawafs, three of them running and four of them walking. Then he prayed behind Maqam Ibrahim. Now all of these you have heard my fiqh of Umrah and fiqh of Hajj. These are now from that. Like you literally, the same phrases you find it, right? Uh, this is where it's coming from. The Jabir ibn Abdullah gave the long hadith. And he prayed behind Maqam Ibrahim and he recited the verse in the Quran, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى And he took the maqam between him and the Kaaba. So he prayed the maqam and the Kaaba. He prayed in the Maqam and the Kaaba. And he recited Surah Al-Kafirun and Surah Al-Ikhlas in the first and the second raka'ah. Then he returned once again to the pillar, the Hajar, Al-Aswad, and he kissed it. He then went out of the gate to As-Safa. And when he reached it, he recited the Quran. إِنَّ الصَّفَى وَالْمَرْوَةَ مِنْ شَعَائِرِ اللَّهِ فَمَنْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتَ أَوْ اِعْتَمَرَ فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَطَّوَّفَ بِهِمَا That Safa and Marwa are from the signs of Allah. I shall begin with what Allah has began with, which is Safa. And he climbed up a Safa until he could see the Kaaba, and he turned around and he faced the Kaaba, and he said, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illa Allahu wahda, sadaqa wa'da, wa nasara abda, wa a'azza junda, wa hazama al-ahzaba wahda, La ilaha illa Allah, wa la na'abudu illa iya, mukhlisina lahuddina, wa law kariha al-kafirun. This is the famous dua that is said, or it is sunnah to say when you are doing uh, tawaf or doing sa'i and it translates as uh, the, or the phrase that is especially uh, especially uh, interesting for us that he says in this that Allah has fulfilled his promise and Allah has spoken the truth and Allah has aided his servant and Allah has destroyed all of the armies by himself and what a perfect thing to say when Makkah is now returned to him and he has not had to fight any battle to conquer Mecca because Allah blessed him with Mecca without a battle. That he took an army but there was no war and Allah averted battle and we talked about the conquest of Mecca. So he is now praising Allah for having given him Mecca. He has fulfilled the promise and he has spoken the truth and so he then stood a long time making dua and he repeated these words three times. Then he descended and walked towards Marwa. Then when his feet came to the bottom of the valley, he ran. In our times, it is now the green posts, right? In the time of the process, it was still the valley. It was still actually two mountains that you would literally go down under. And those green lights, those green posts, are meant to indicate when you would dip under, where our mother Hajar, when she went under, she couldn't see Ismail. That is why she ran to get to the other side so she could see Ismail. And so up until the day of the process, it was still down. Of course, later on it was changed and now of course it is uh, completely uh, flat. And he did the same at uh, Marwa. Then when he finished, he said, if I had known now what I know, if I had known before what I know now, I would not have brought my sacrificial animals and I would have only performed an Umrah now. Whoever amongst you does not have his animals should only perform an Umrah and get out of the Ihram. This is Tamattu. So Suraqa ibn Malik stood up. This is the same Suraqa ibn Malik we heard, read about so many years ago. Now he's come back to Medina just to do the Hajj. Just to be with the Prophet one more time. Suraqa ibn Malik stood up and he said, Ya Rasulullah, is this rule only for this year or is it for every year? 
Meaning this is a new thing we've heard. That you can come for hajj and then get out of ihram before you do the hajj. And this is tamattu. So our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam intertwined the fingers of his hand. Shabbaka bayna asabi'ihi. And he said, hajj and umrah has been combined together until the day of judgment. Meaning this now law of being able to do an umrah and a hajj in one journey while getting out of ihram, this is ila yawm al-qiyamah. It's not something that is only for uh, this year. Uh, and then uh, Ali came back from Yemen with the hadi from the Prophet ﷺ and found Fatima to be there amongst those who had taken the ihram off. And she was wearing colorful clothing and she had applied kuhul. Now, of course, the, the Fatima is the great-great-grandmother of the person in front of him, right? So he's now bringing this in to give him a family anecdote, even though he is not Al al-Bayt, he is Jabir. But he knows this detail and he's telling something to the great-great-grandson of Fatima herself. And Ali became irritated that how come you're dressed like this? She said, my father told me to do so. Uh, we talked about this phrase, so I'll jump over it. And then uh, Ali said that uh, the to- or sorry, Jabir said, the total number of animals brought by Ali from Yemen was 100. 100 camels our Prophet had ordered from Yemen. Of course, this is a fortune. This is a massive amount. This is uh, a large amount of wealth. And our Prophet had purchased 100 camels from uh, the people of uh, Yemen. And uh, on the uh, day of Tarwiyah, which is the 8th of Dhul Hijjah, the rest of the Sahaba clipped their, hail, their, 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 their nails, they, they entered into the state of Ihram and went to Mina. And the Prophet ﷺ led the way and he prayed in Mina, Dhuhr and Asr, and then Maghrib and Isha, and then Fajr. So he's telling us what we do in Mina, Dhuhr and Asr, and Maghrib and Isha, and then Fajr, he prayed in Mina. He then waited till the sun rose a little. So this is on what day now? Ninth, the ninth of Dhul Hijjah. This is on the ninth of Dhul Hijjah. He waited till the sun rose a little and commanded that a tent be pitched for him at Namira. Namira is the land right outside of Arafah. It's literally connected to Arafah. It's like the, the, the one stop before Arafah is Namira. So he told the people, get my tent ready at Namira. So the Prophet ﷺ then set out towards Namira. And the Quraysh did not doubt that he would stop at Al-Mash'al Al-Haram, the sacred site. Now, pause here. One needs to understand something about the Quraysh and their rituals of Hajj. So, Al-Mash'al Al-Haram, which is uh, Muzdalifa, is, and Mina, Muzdalifa and Mina, is inside the Haram area of Mecca. Clear? There is a haram area, the sacred area of Mecca, where all the rules of fiqh apply. You cannot hunt animals, you cannot pluck trees, you cannot carry weapons. That is the haram area. And it is defined by classical Islam, by the seerah, by the Prophet So, Mina and Muzdalifa, they come inside the haram. Arafah is sacred land, but it is not inside the haram. Arafah is holy for the Hajj. Okay, we go there, we stand there. But Arafah is not inside the Haram. So the Quraysh invented a new doctrine. And the Quraysh said, we are the people of the Haram. How can we leave the Haram in Hajj and stand at Arafat? 
That's for the rest of you guys. We will stay at the very boundary of the Haram, which is Muzdalifa, at a place called Al Mash'al Al Haram, which is uh, also a particular Jabal, a particular mountain. Is that clear? Right? So they reinvented the rules of Hajj to make it elitist for themselves. We're too holy for you guys. You guys go to Arafat, so the Quraysh would not stand at Arafat. Believe it or not, the Quraysh would not stand at Arafat. They would not go to the pillar of Hajj thinking they're too holy to leave the Haram. You measly mortals go, we are the elite of the Quraysh. So when the Prophet said, sent my tent at Namira, the Quraysh who, had, who are new Muslims assumed, okay, he's going to stick with our tradition. Because Namira is right outside of Arafah, it's not inside Arafah. So they thought that the Prophet would stop at Al-Mash'al Al-Haram. Uh, the Prophet however passed on Al-Mash'al Al-Haram. He continued going until he came to Arafah and he camped at Namira. And Namira, as we said, literally, Namira finishes and Arafah begins literally like this room and that hall in the back. Literally, there's a line. And if you go there, you will see uh, that the Masjid of Arafat, the Masjid of Arafah, uh, which is called Masjid Namira, a little bit of it is outside and most of it is inside. And there's a line inside the Masjid. If you go inside the Masjid, you will see this is where Arafah begins. Literally, there's a line. So our Prophet camped a stone's throw away, 10 feet away from the line. Like he literally is at Namira, which is right outside the, uh, the plains of, of Arafah. And he camped at Namira. Then he got down until the sun had passed the meridian. So the sun now, the zawal begins. And as soon as the zawal begins, then he commanded, bring my camel to me. And he continued going inside Arafah. In other words, he waited till right at the beginning of Dhuhr, then he entered Arafah. Clear? He literally camped, waiting for the millisecond after Dhuhr begins, then he enters Arafah, which was new for the Quraysh. He enters Arafah and he made his way to Batn al-Wadi. And this is the valley of Arana, uh, which is... Uh, uh, there inside of Arafat and he addressed the people over there. So he gave them a khutbah. We're going to come back to this khutbah. By the way, a common misconception is that he gave one khutbah. No, he gave at least three khutbahs. He gave at least three khutbahs and inshallah that's what's going to be after I finish the hadith of Jabir. I will go back and talk about those khutbahs. He gave a khutbah on the day of Arafah right now. And this was the most important because this is the day of Arafah. And it is established the sunnah that every single year the khatib or the imam gives a khutbah on Arafah. Okay, this is the khutbah of Arafah. And he also gave khutbahs in Mina as well. Not to the level, smaller khutbahs, but he gave khutbah on the 10th and khutbah on the 11th, maybe even on the 12th. And uh, these are recorded in the various books. So, of course, there's 100, 150,000 people and he's giving... He's getting multiple opportunities to speak to the masses, so he takes advantage of conveying different information to the uh, masses. And we're going to come back to this uh, khutbah, uh, what he said. And then the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam asked Ad, uh, uh, Bilal to make the iqama, and so the Prophet then led them in Dhuhr and Asr. And he did not pray anything in between, just Dhuhr and then just Asr, two and two, as we all know in Hajj. When you get to Arafah, you pray Dhuhr and Asr together. Then the Prophet ﷺ, after he gave the khutbah, he then mounted his camel again and made his way to where the rocks are, which is what we now call Jabal al-Rahmah. He made his way to Jabal al-Rahmah. So from the masjid, which is now the masjid, 
because these masjids have been built afterwards, obviously, to commemorate where he's doing these things. From the masjid, he gives the khutbah, uh, and then he goes to what is now Jabal al-Rahma, and in all likelihood, he did not climb the mountain. Or if he climbed it, he only went a little bit. Nothing is mentioned that says that he climbed to the top of the uh, mountain. And in any case, what he said there was, وَقَفْتُهَا هُنَا وَعَرَفَتُ كُلُّهَا موقف. I have happened to stand here, but all of Arafah is a place of standing. Wherever you are, it's fine. So he's literally saying there's nothing special about coming to Jabal Rahmah. And that's something very important to know because a lot of people get lost and go to great lengths to go to Jabal Rahmah. And there's no need to do that. You can anywhere in Arafah is exactly the same. And he said the same in Mina, by the way. I happen to camp here, but all of Mina is a camping ground. And he said the same in Muzdalifah. I spent the night here, but all of Muzdalifah is a spending night ground. And wallahi, this shows us the fiqh of the Prophet, his care and concern that he fully understands that people might somehow think this one area. No, all of Arafah. All of Mina, all of Muzdalifah is the same when we go there for Hajj. Back to the hadith of uh, Jabir. Back to the hadith of Jabir. And he continued to stand there at the bottom of Jabal Rahmah from after Dhuhr, basically, until sunset. And he continued to make dua. And wallahi, you read this and your mind just boggles. Like anybody who's been for Hajj, you cannot... More than 20, 30 minutes, then you just get tired, you need to freshen up, go, you know, it's hot, whatnot. Non-stop. From the time he gets to Jabal Rahmah until Maghrib, he's standing there with his hands raised, making dua, making dua, making dua. Hours go by and he is making dua. And of course, that is the essence of Hajj, Al-Hajj Arafah, as our Prophet ﷺ said, until the sun had set and the yellow light had disappeared in the sky and the disk of the sun had completely gone below. He then put Usama ibn Zayd, his, uh, Zayd of course was his quote-unquote adopted son, as you know, the Zayd ibn Harith, this is Usama ibn Zayd, on the camel besides him, behind him, and he pulled the nose string of Qaswa, Qaswa is of course his camel, until it almost touched his saddle, meaning he's holding the camel back, he's not rushing it forward meaning he's taking the camel very slow. And he continued to go towards Muzdalifah, telling the people with his hands, slow down, slow down. If only the drivers of our times followed this slow down command, right? But subhanAllah, he's understanding there will be people, this is going to happen. So he himself from Arafat to Muzdalifah, and of course, all of us that have been for Hajj, they know this is the most chaotic time the most chaotic time. And our Prophet ﷺ, even though he, nobody's gonna block him, correct? Nobody's gonna, still he, what does he wanna do? He wants to set the example for us. He wants to show us, and he's, with his hands, he's telling the people, slow down, slow down, no need to hurry, well, you'll get there. And he proceeded this way until he reached Muzdalifa. Somebody asked him, Ya Rasulullah, as-salah, how about Maghrib? What are we going to do? And he pointed forward, he said, As-salatu amamak. The salah is in front of you. In other words, we're going to pray Maghrib and Isha in Muzdalifah. We're not supposed to pray Maghrib now. We pray it in Muzdalifah. And so he continued until he reached Muzdalifah. There he led them in uh, Maghrib and Isha with one adhan and two iqamas. 
So again, shortened end, uh, three and two. Maghrib and Isha, you pray one adhan and two iqamas. And the Prophet ﷺ then laid down and uh, rested until he offered the dawn prayer. Uh, this is in Muzdalifah. And uh, he then made dua in Muzdalifah. This is a sunnah that most people don't do. To stay in Muzdalifah and make dua until the sun had become bright. Until the sun had become bright. And then he made his way to Al-Mash'ad Al-Haram. Uh, and he faced the Qibla and supplicated to Allah and glorified him uh, until the sun, excuse me, until the sun was bright. I already mentioned this, that this is in Muzdalifah. He then hastened before the sun rose up. He hastened back uh, to basically uh, go to uh, uh, the, the Kaaba and uh, uh, to go to, excuse me, to Mina, excuse me. And <clears throat> he followed the middle road, which comes out at the great Jamra. And there he threw his seven pebbles saying, Allahu Akbar, which each of these pebbles, and he threw uh, from the bottom of the valley. So uh, from the side now, subhanAllah, if you're facing Makkah, it's going to be on the right hand side. But again, all of it is fine. If you throw from the other side, that's fine as well. But he, he threw from the, the bottom of the valley and he said, Allahu Akbar in each, uh, each of these Ramis. And then he went to the place of sacrifice and sacrificed 63 camels with his own hand. 63 camels of the hundreds, hundred camels that Ali had brought him. Now, Jabir's report does not mention this. Another hadith mentions that when our Prophet took the knife to the herd of camels, they all were rushing to see which one would be the first. And they were racing to be slaughtered at the hands of the Prophet one by one. We know that's not what animals do. Rather, when they see the knife, they turn and flee. But in this case, the animals were racing to see which one would be the one that, that slaughters with the hands of the Prophet He then gave the remaining to Ali to slaughter, 37 basically, to make it a total of 100. So he slaughtered one camel for every year of his life, 63 years old now. He slaughtered one camel for every year of his life and the remainder he gave to Ali to slaughter. He then commanded that a piece of flesh be taken from each of those animals. So all of those 100 animals, just take a little bit and then put it in a pot to uh, cook. And uh, this is of course to feed the poor and also to eat yourself. And when it was cooked, he took some meat out and he ate and he drank of its soup. So uh, this is again one of the sunnahs that he had done is that yes, you cook the meat, you eat it, you give it to others. And this is a sunnah we all do to this day, alhamdulillah. The, the meat of the udhiyah is halal for us and we also distribute it to the poor and the fuqara. And then our Prophet ﷺ then rode again and went to the Kaaba. So he's done what he needs to do at Mina. Now he goes to the Kaaba and he prayed the Dhuhr prayer in the Haram. He then went to the uh, Banu Abdul Muttalib and they were the ones in charge of taking the water of Zamzam out. And he asked them, draw water out, Ya Bani Abdul Muttalib. And were it not for the fact that the people would take this right away, if I were to do it, I would have helped along with you. Meaning, and wallahi this is amazing, our Prophet ﷺ understands, if I draw water, everybody will want to take this right because I did it. So in order to save the ummah that, I'm not going to do it. And you go ahead and do it and I'll just drink from what you give me. This is what he is saying. That if I were to draw the water out, then 
others would take it away from you because I did it. So they want to follow my sunnah. And he understands therefore that people are so eager to follow him that they're going to do everything he has done. And so he says, because of this, I'm not going to draw water. You draw water out and I'll just basically drink from your water. And then they handed him a cup and he drank from the uh, water. This is the hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah. And as I said, quite literally without exaggeration, there are hundreds of a hadith about the Hajj of the Prophet each one of which gives primarily fiqh rulings. We're not really that concerned in the seerah class about those fiqh rulings. Most important for us for this uh, seerah episode is the khutbas of our Prophet And as I said, he actually gave multiple khutbas. One in Arafat and two or maybe even three in Mina. One in Arafat and two or maybe three in Mina. And on the day of Arafah of that year, it happened to be a Friday as well. And uh, this is from where the, the, the notion comes from. That our Prophet called that Hajj. This is the day of Al-Hajj Al-Akbar. Al-Hajj Al-Akbar. Now, number of points here. Al-Hajj Al-Akbar is the ninth of the Hijjah. And every Hajj that we go to is Hajj Akbar. And if there's anything called Hajj Asghar, it is Umrah. If there's anything called Hajj Asr, it's Umrah. But unfortunately, what has happened is there's this uh, cultural notion that if Arafah falls on a Friday, then it becomes Hajj Akbar. And this is a misunderstanding of what the Prophet is saying. That's not what he is saying. However, if Arafah does fall on Hajj, and this last year actually that happened when we were there for Hajj, uh, it did happen. So when it does happen, no doubt there's some extra blessings. And we thank Allah for that. Friday is blessed and the ninth is blessed. So blessing upon blessing, Nurun ala Nur. But if it doesn't fall on a Friday, the Hajj is no lesser of a Hajj. It's not Hajj Asghar versus Hajj Akbar. No, all Hajj that we go to is Hajj Akbar. And in particular, the ninth of the Hijjah is the day of Al-Hajj Al-Akbar. So this is a misunderstanding. However, in the time the Prophet did it, it so happened, coincidence that, or Allah's Qadr, that Arafah fell on a Friday. So the ninth of the Hijjah came on a Friday. And it was in the, on the ninth of the Hijjah, standing on the plains of Arafah, that Allah revealed Wahi to him. So the Wahi of the Quran came down on this auspicious, auspicious occasion. And this is now the famous verse in the Quran. الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينَكُمْ وَأَتْمَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ نِعْمَتِي وَرَضِيتُ لَكُمُ الْإِسْلَامَ دِينَ That today, I have completed your religion for you and perfected my blessings upon you and chosen Islam as your way of life. This was the verse revealed. It is not the last verse of the Quran because there's still three months left of the life of the Prophet Other verses will be revealed. Perhaps Surah Al-Nasr came down after this as well. For sure, some verses of Surah Baqarah came down as well as we'll talk about uh, in our next class insha'Allah. Uh, so this is not the last verse revealed, but it is one of the last verses. And what a beautiful verse. One of the Yahud came to Umar ibn Khattab and he said, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, you have a verse in your Quran. If we had its equivalent, we would have taken that day as a day of Eid, celebration. Umar said, what verse? 
So the Yahudi recited Al Yawma Akmatu Lakum Dinakum Wazmamtu Alikum Nirmati Waraditu Lakum al Islam Badina. Umar said, I know exactly when this verse was revealed. Our Prophet was standing in Arafah on the day of Hajj al Akbar and Allah revealed this verse. So it was already, it's already a day of celebration for us. And what a fitting ayah to come down. When Islam is at its glorious peak, when 150,000 maybe or 100,000 people are doing Hajj, when the entire Arabian Peninsula is now upon Islam, when there's not a single idol that is worshipped in the entire peninsula, when all of the Arabs have embraced So this verse came down. And it was here that our Prophet stood up uh, and some said he was on his camel, some said he stood on his camel, uh, and he uh, gave a sermon and he told Al-Abbas and Ali to quieten the crowd, and he told Abbas to repeat after him. And in another version, this is an interesting point that not many people know, in the Sunan of Abu Dawood, it says that one of the Sahaba said that we listened to the Prophet's khutbah and we could hear it even from our tents. So what appears to be the case then, is that yes indeed, some people did repeat, but also somehow the voice of the Prophet was amplified. It was a miracle basically. Because the Sahabi is saying, we could hear his voice from our tents. And that's not something that is normal. He's saying, from the furthest tents we could hear the voice. So from this, we get a miracle of the Prophet that somehow uh, Allah Azza wa blessed his voice so that the people of Arafah could hear his voice directly. And he said, so this is the khutbah of Arafah. And this is the important khutbah that we know of. And in all likelihood, probably other sentences, uh, he must have said them, but we only get this one paragraph, which is the gist of it. He said, O people, listen to me, for I know not whether I shall meet you again after this year. So he clearly has a premonition. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be with you next year. Your blood and your money are haram for you, meaning you cannot kill each other, you cannot steal each other's money, just like this day has its hurma, its sanctity, in this month, in this land. So he abolishes the law of the jungle, which was rampant in Arabia. The survival of the fittest is gone. Nobody can steal or rape or plunder or kill other people anymore. The law of the jungle is gone. Just like today, now the Arabs, all of them, despite their paganism, they upheld the sanctity of the Haram. We talked about this many times. They respected the Haram. They respected the Kaaba. They respected the Hajj. They respected Dhul Hijjah. They respected the ninth of Dhul Hijjah. And no war was, no blood was shed. So our Prophet is saying, you understand how sacred this land is? How holy this place is? How blessed this day is? Each one of you's lives and properties is just as sacred as the Kaaba, is just as sacred as the ninth of the Hijjah, is just as sacred as Ashhar al-Hurm. So he is striking the point home that all of this is gone. Then he said, Verily, everything from the time of Jahiliyyah, Tahta Qadami Mawdu'ah, which is beautiful. Tahta Qadami under my foot. And it's a very, very harsh way of saying. A very clear way of saying it's gone. It's obliterated. It's something of the past. Under my foot means what? It's trampled over. It's gone. <laughs> Eliminated. All of the ways of jahili, Everything. 
your cultural ways, your rituals, your idol worship, your this and that, all of jahiliyyah is gone now. This is such a comprehensive and powerful statement. Your way of life that was jahiliyyah is now gone. Islam has come with something new. And then he says, all of the blood fuse from the days of jahiliyyah are gone. All of your tribal warfare is now Every tribe had a long list of enemies and a long list of allies written in blood. Every tribe had its feuds. Every tribe has its grievances. And this was what was preventing the tribes from uniting. What did our Prophet say? All of these blood feuds are under my foot obliterated. Meaning, khalas, gone. No other feud is going to be there. And he says, the first blood money that I obliterate is the blood money from my own family, the son of Rabi'ah ibn al-Harith, Rabi'ah ibn al-Harith ibn Abdul Muttalib. Al-Harith is the uncle of the Prophet Rabi'ah is his cousin, the son of Rabi'ah. Al-Harith was the oldest of Abdul Muttalib. Abdullah was one of the youngest. So, a uh, story here, very brief footnote. One of the sons of Rabi'ah was killed in a, a war between two tribes, between the Banu Sa'd and the Hudayl, and he was being raised by the Banu Sa'd, just like the Prophet was raised by the Banu Sa'd, the Halima Sa'diyya. So they were raised by the Banu Sa'd. This boy was caught in the battle. He's an innocent boy, young boy, and he was killed by the tribe of Hudayl. So the Quraysh had a long feud against the Hudayl because of this. Okay, blood money, 100 camels hadn't been paid, and they're willing to go to war. So this is something owed to the Quraysh. What does the Prophet say? The first blood money that I obliterate is my own families. He's being the role model here. This is money owed to him. What does he say? I'm not going to take that money. Okay, then he says, Verily, verily, the riba from the days of Jahiliyyah is under my foot abolished. It's all gone. And the first riba that I abolish is the riba of my uncle, Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. Abbas was a wealthy man by now. And he was well known for giving lots of loans on riba. And when Islam came, riba was prohibited. But this was old news. So he was due lots of interest. Clear? He was due lots of interest. So the Prophet said, the first money that I obliterate from riba is the money of my uncle Abbas. You pay him back what you got, not a penny more. SubhanAllah, this is being the role model, the leader by example. The leader by example. My family is going to benefit from this blood money, from this riba, but no more. So SubhanAllah, wallahi, what, what wisdom, what leadership that I'm showing you, I'm serious about this, my own family will not benefit from riba, my own family will, will not benefit from the uh, blood feud and the blood money. Then he said, and Fear Allah, be conscious of Allah with regards to women and the rights of women. For you have taken them with the protection of Allah and made them permissible with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, in a society where women had no rights whatsoever, and this is something so important, brothers and sisters, that there was no reason for Islam to come and talk about women. There was no reason for our Prophet to mention women in the farewell pilgrimage on the day of Arafah, in the most important khutbah he ever gave in his life. 
the most important khutbah he ever gave. And he has a paragraph about women. Think about that. Why? Because no society can flourish if its women are mistreated. No ummah can rise if its women are not treated with dignity and respect. So he said, fear Allah with regards to your women. Ittaqullah. Fear Allah with regards to your women. For basically Allah has given them to you. You have used His name to make them halal. So He's reminding them the nikah contract has in the name of Allah. And you are now, they are now with you under the protection of Allah. And nobody is watching you other than Allah. So fear Allah with regards to those women. Ittaqullah with regards to those uh, women. And their right upon you is that they do not allow anyone to step on your bed for that you would hate. Meaning, their right is that they must be faithful and loyal to you. That's what the point is, right? And he's using Arabic expressions, stepping on their bed, you understand, doing things that would not be uh, like flirtatious and whatnot. Uh, and he said, if they do something, meaning disobey you, you have the right to discipline them in a manner that is not painful. Now pause here. No doubt this phrase is problematic for some people of our time. And that's a separate tangent. The fact of the matter in this society, in this society, when it was the norm that men would beat their wives without any question. This was the normal rule. And we learned this from so many narrations. What did our Prophet say? If they do something of a serious consequence, then you may discipline them without any pain, without any injury. Now, whether this should be done in our times or not and whatnot, that's a separate discussion and that's beyond the scope of my Sira lesson. I've given talks about that as well. And in our times, uh, any type of discipline, uh, to be honest, is something that is going to break a marriage rather than save a marriage. And this is something that I have talked about in other uh, classes. The point is, our Prophet set guidelines. Those guidelines might not be palatable to some people uh, in the 21st century, but one needs to realize when this was said, Wallahi, this is groundbreaking. This is something that is leaps and bounds above what the people are doing with their women and their wives. So if, uh, sorry, uh, and they have a right on you. So all of this is about women. They have a right on you. Sorry, that, sorry they have a right over you. Yes, that you give them their rizq and their nafaqa, their sustenance in a manner that is suitable to you. Meaning, you are obliged to take care of them financially and all of their needs in a manner that is in accordance. Bil ma'roof. Bil ma'roof means according to what you have, your wife and family shall live. So he stresses family rights in the khutbah al-wada. And he talks about your money needs to be used upon your wife and your children in a manner that is equitable uh, to you. Then he said, and I have left amongst you something that as long as you hold it, you will never go astray. The Kitabullah, the book of Allah, Jalla Jalaluhu. So this was the Khutbat al-Wada' that is in Arafah. We're going to get to another one tomorrow. And he said, you shall soon be asked about me, so what shall you say? So they replied, we will testify in front of Allah that you have conveyed the message and done your duty and that you were sincere. So he wants to be a clean conscience in front of Allah that, Oh Allah, I have done my job. I have conveyed the message of Islam and I have done what you wanted me to do. And when they said this, 
he raised his hands to the sky, his fingers to the sky, and he said, Allahumma fashhad, Allahumma fashhad, Allahumma fashhad, three times. Oh Allah, bear witness that they have said, they have heard me, they've understood, so O oh Allah, bear witness. And why? Because Allah says in the Quran that on that day, you will be a witness, and on that day, every ummah will be asked about its witness or its messenger. So the messengers will be asked and the ummah will be asked. We shall ask the people who had the Prophet, we shall ask the Prophets. Both will be asked. So our Prophet wanted the ummah to respond on the day of judgment that, Oh Allah, our Prophet has done the job. So he's making them testify and they all testified to this. And on the next day, on the day of An-Nahr, on the day of sacrifice, the 10th of Dhul-Hijjah, he gave another khutbah on the 10th of Dhul-Hijjah. And he said that verily, time has returned to its rightful place as it was on the day that Allah created the heavens and the earth. A year is 12 months, four of which are sacred, are sacred. three of them are consecutive, Dhul-Qa'dah, Dhul-Hijjah, and Muharram, and the Rajab of Mudar, uh, which is between Jumada and Sha'ban. Pause here. What is he talking about, Sallallahu What he's saying is the following. The Quraysh had this weird custom of changing the years around whenever they wanted to. So if they wanted to go to war, and it happened to be one of the sacred months, they would say, you know what, let's just swap. So in our English calendar, because we'll understand, suppose January is sacred, February is not. They wanted to go to war in January, they'll say, okay, let's all pretend it's February now, and we'll do January next month. Okay? That's literally what they would do. I'm not exaggerating this. They would just f swap the month. Now, obviously, after a few years, all the months are jumbled up. It's confused. After a few years of doing what, what, so now it gets a little bit confused. So, this year, the year that the Prophet did Hajj, he said... It is the Qadr of Allah, it so happened, coincidence, Allah's Qadr, that this year's calendar was exactly the way that it should be, just like according to the Nidham, the Tartib, the day that Allah created the heavens and the earth. Those same 12 months in the right order were in this year as well. In other words, keep the calendar, which is what the Muslims have done. Keep the calendar. They have kept the same calendar. So time has returned to the original as it was the day Allah created the heavens and the earth. These four months are sacred. Keep those four months there. Don't mess them around. So that's what that is about. Then he paused. Then he said, what month is this? And the people were shocked because that's such an obvious question. So they were too embarrassed to answer. So then he said, isn't this the month of Dhul-Hijjah? And they said, yes. Then he was quiet. Then he said, what day is this? They were again like, this is such an obvious question. Maybe he's going to change the day. They didn't know what to answer. So he said, isn't this the day of An-Nahr? They said, yes. They said, what place is this? Again, they were like, this is too embarrassing. This is such an obvious question. So he said, this is, this is Mina. This is the, the area of the Haram. So then he said, and again, the point being, all of the Arabs understood the sanctity of the Kaaba, Mina, the, uh, the day, the time. They all understood how holy this was. So then he said the same message again, but in a different way. By asking them these questions, right? By asking them these questions to make them realize and think how holy is Mecca, how holy is Dhul Hijjah, how holy is the day of An-Nahr. So he said, verily, your lives and your money, now he added, and your honor. A'rad. You don't slander other people. 
You don't speak about other people's integrity. They are haram upon you, just as sacred as this month is upon you, and this day is upon you, and this place is upon you. Now what is he doing in all of this? SubhanAllah, he is uniting the ummah. This is what he is doing here. Making the ummah one. Forget everything. You must all be one ummah under, the, uh, under Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he said, So waylakum, woe to you. Do not return to being kuffar, killing one another. So don't return to that. Don't become kuffar after me. La kuffara. Don't become kuffar after me. So he is saying, those were such ridiculous, pagan, evil ways. Don't go back to that. And astaghfirullah, but look at the Muslim ummah now and what it is doing. And our Prophet from the last point he is saying, don't kill one another. Don't go, this is, this is the ways of the kuffar, it's not the ways of the uh, Muslims. And he said, let the one who is present go and inform the one who is absent. Go and tell people about this khutbah, so perhaps the one who hears understands better than the one who heard it for the first time. And in one version of Tirmidhi, he said, Shaytan has given up hope of being worshipped in this peninsula, in this land. Arabia will not return to idolatry, pause here footnote, until the days of Dajjal. That is another thing. The very last generations after Dajjal, yes. But in the, in the middle interim, Arabia will not return to idolatry. It's not going to find uh, the, those idols being resurrected. Shaytan has given up hope of being worshipped in your land. He is still worshipped in other lands, but not in this land. But what is he hoping now? In, but he is hopeful in you obeying him in matters that you consider trivial. Sins and other things. That's what his hope is. That you're going to obey him on other things. And in one version he said, What he's hoping for is to rile you up so that you fight one another. This is what shaitan wants. Disunity. To fight one another. That's where he's optimistic and he might get you guys. He's not going to get you from an idol anymore. You're not going to be worshipping an idol as an ummah. Now this doesn't mean no Muslim will ever become an idol worshipper. It means the ummah as a whole will not return to idolatry. Which is the case, alhamdulillah. The bulk of the ummah is not worshipping idols. And it will not worship idols until the day of judgment. And he said... Uh, the famous hadith as well that the Muslim, the real Muslim, is the one from whose hands and tongue other Muslims are safe from. And the mu'min is the one whom the people aminu trust with their money and their property. And the muhajir is the one who has left the sins from Allah, committing from Allah. And the mujahid is the one who is striving in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in a hadith in Tirmidhi, we learn from all of these are different hadith, by the way, that one Sahabi is hearing something, he reports it from the Hajjat al Wada' and the Khutbah on Mina. And in Tirmidhi, the hadith says, the famous hadith, uh, which we say all the time, it was actually said in Hajjat al Wada' that fear Allah and pray your five prayers and fast your month of Ramadan and give your zakah and obey your rulers and you shall enter the Jannah of your Lord. Meaning, Concentrate on the arkan of Islam. Be good Muslims, you will enter Jannah. 
and in the Mustad of Imam Ahmad, in the famous hadith as well, that all of us, uh, all of us have memorized and have heard since we were children, uh, and it is an authentic hadith that our Prophet said, "All of you are from one, and your father is one." لا فضل لعربي على عجمي ولا عجمي على عربي ولا لأحمر على أسود ولا أسود على أحمر إلا بالتقوى this is an authentic hadith in Muslim Imam Ahmad from the Hajjatul Wada'. And this is completely revolutionary, as I have said many times before. No philosopher, thinker, intellectual leader in the history of humanity had ever said all humans are equal. Nobody. Every society thought we are better. Whether it was ethnicity, whether it was race, they always thought we are better. And the first person to say this, and clearly this is from the divine, because this is not something that the son of Abdul Muttalib would want to say, if he were simply the son of Abdul Muttalib. The person who has the most noble lineage amongst all of the Arabs, he is the one saying, it doesn't matter whether you're Arab or Ajam, whether you're white or black, it's all irrelevant except with taqwa. That is revolutionary for humanity and now we are still struggling with this concept, but we know it's right in our world. We know it's right, but we're still struggling with this concept. 14 centuries ago, the first human to ever say it so bluntly was our Prophet So all of these are various narrations. So by the way, when we see that big poster about Hajjat al-Wada, realize that that poster is a conglomeration of all of these lectures. And the fact of the matter is he gave a khutbah in Arafah, he gave a khutbah on the 12th, he gave khutbah on the 11th, he gave a khutbah on the 10th, and all of them put together we get the, 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 the big poster that we see. And there's nothing wrong with that, just realize that's not one khutbah, he actually gave many smaller uh, khutbahs. So we now uh, conclude and we say that uh, the process has spent three nights in Mina, Typically, we spend two, we leave on the 12th, but it is allowed to spend on the 13th. Our process was spent the 13th in Mina, and at night, he went to perform Tawaf al-Wada' at night, and he then returned on his journey to Medina. Aisha narrates that when they first arrived in Mecca, this is the fourth of Dhul-Hijjah, when they first arrived in Mecca, the Prophet entered in her tent, and she was crying. So we go back a bit, the fourth. And the Prophet said, Malaki, Anafisti, what is the matter? Have you started your menses? And by the way, this shows us so many things. Firstly, our Prophet intuitively, yani, subhanAllah, he's, he's in tune. What, why would she be crying? And immediately. Also, our sisters are always irritated when they get that cycle in the last 10 days of Ramadan or for Hajj and Umrah or whatever. You're not the first. Your mother Aisha was crying when she started her menses. She was crying because the menses have begun and she's literally outside of Mecca, right? So she's very sad. Now, now what am I going to do? Okay. So the Prophet said, don't worry. This is something Allah has written it on all of the daughters of Adam. Oh, this is, all women get this. Don't cry. Do everything that the Hujjaj do except Tawaf. So you will go to Arafah, you will go to Muzdalifah, you'll go to Mina, you will do the Rami, you will do your Dua, all that the Hajjaj do except Tawaf. And then on the day of the 13th, she finished the menses. And, or sorry, uh, before the 13th, sorry. She finished her menses some days on Mina, we don't know exactly when. So she went and she did the, the, uh, the uh, Tawaf 
uh, of Ifadah, which is the Tawaf of Hajj. Now on the 13th, when they're going to come back to Mina, to sorry, to Medina, Aisha says, Ya Rasulullah, are all of your wives going to go back having performed an Umrah and a Hajj? And I only have Hajj? It's not fair. So the Prophet said, Ya Aisha, it's sufficient that you did the Tawaf, you did everything, you have it. Meaning, Ifrad, it's fine, no big deal. But Aisha said, your wives will have double and I'll have one? No. That's not gonna happen. So she insisted, and as all good husbands do when your wife insists, you give up. So our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam then told Abdurrahman, her brother, Ibn Abi Bakr, to take her to, where did he take her? Was it called Masjid Aisha back then? <laughs> Obviously not. Tan'im. Tan'im is the closest place to Mecca outside of its haram. So the haram of Mecca, call it a circle or whatever. So the smallest distance from the Kaaba to the circle of Mecca, the circle of the haram, excuse me, will be Tan'im. Clear? Right? So it's not a full circle. It's more of an oblong thing. So the smallest distance would be Tan'im. So he told Abdurrahman ibn Bakr, take her to Tan'im. Put her in a haram and do, ta- and do, and do the umrah with her. Uh, sorry, do, let her do the umrah. Abu Abdurrahman himself did not do umrah, by the way. This is interesting. He's accompanying Aisha, but he does not do umrah. Uh, you may listen to my lecture online about the fiqh of umrah. I go into all of the madahib about should you do multiple umrahs when you're inside of Mecca. And I go into all of this. And, you know, it's clear in my humble opinion, it's permissible, but it's not the encouraged thing to do. It's permissible. Aisha did it, she insisted, so she did it. But her own brother and none of the Sahaba repeated the, the, the Umrah, but it shows it's halal. It's nothing wrong, so the one who wants to do it, let him do it, don't make a big deal. Aisha insisted, khalas, let her go. So she does her uh, Umrah and uh, they then go back to, and they meet up, the process is already left by the way. So they meet him back on the journey and they make their way back to Medina. Uh, one very important final incident uh, which we have to discuss uh, just briefly. And that is the incident that is a very big source of controversy between the Sunni and the Shia schools of thought. Uh, it is very important uh, for the Shia this incident. And for us this incident really is an innocent story. It's a very simple explanation. But for the Shia, this story becomes the basis of Ali being the next Khalifa. Okay? For us, the story is so innocent that Ibn Hisham and others, they mention it just like almost in passing. It's not, it's not anything of that significance. It's a context. You understand the context. It's pretty clear. No big deal. But... For the Shia, this story becomes the basis, really, of Ali being the uh, Khalifa. So, in the books of Sirah, in the books of Hadith, this is well known. Uh, the Sunnis do not change history. The Sunnis are not embarrassed about anything. There's this charge that always comes that the Sunnis uh, hide the blessings of Ali. No, Wallahi, Ali radiallahu anhu is of the best of the Sahaba. And his blessings are more than can be narrated. And he was the son-in-law and the cousin and the Al al-bayt. And his blessings are on and on and on. But Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman are also blessed. And Abu Bakr deserved to be the Khalifa before him. His time came when he was worthy of it and he was worthy of it. But Abu Bakr and Umar 
and Uthman, radiallahu anhum ajma'in, they are also righteous people and we don't compete between them. Ali deserved to be the Khalifa and he became the Khalifa when he deserved to be the Khalifa. In any case, that's not the point right now. What is this incident? It is the incident that is called Ghadir Khum, the well of Khum. Ghadir Khum, the well of Khum. And it occurred the next day outside of Mecca, and it's a very innocent story from the Sunni perspective. Uh, what happened? So, where did Ali come from? Remind me. Yemen. Yemen. He's coming from Yemen. And as he's coming from Yemen, obviously he has his entourage with him. He has his people under him. And he has the wealth of Yemen, the zakat, the sadaqah, all of this he has. And he has 100 camels for the Prophet ﷺ. Now, he arrives in Mecca. He's very excited. He rushes to meet the Prophet. He leaves somebody in charge of his entourage. The person he leaves in charge, his name is mentioned, he decides to distribute new clothes to the entire entourage from the treasury, from the sadaqah. Like we deserve this basically, this is our pay. So he takes new clothes and he gives it to all of them. And Yemen was known for his good clothes, by the way. Yemeni clothes were very good clothes, and cloth was good cloth. And he basically made his own ishtihad, that we deserve this, and we're supposed to look good now, we're coming to the people. Now, this was technically what? It's not allowed, right? Ali comes back, radiallahu an, and he is incensed. How could you do this? Take the clothes off your backs and put them back in the sadaqah. And so, how do you think they're going to feel? Not too happy. They're grumbling, they're mumbling, they're angry. And as soon as they get the opportunity, right after Hajj, they complain to the Prophet ﷺ. Not in Hajj, Hajj is going on, let's finish up Hajj. Soon as Hajj finishes, they complain to the Prophet ﷺ. So, the Prophet ﷺ then gives that paragraph, that is known as the Sermon of Ghadir Khum. And in it he says that, uh, he praises Ali radiallahu an. And he says that uh, whoever is the Mawla of Ali, then I am the Mawla of Ali. And Ali is like to me like Harun and Musa. So he praises him in a very, very high manner. And there's no denying this. And he rebukes those people for criticizing Ali. And they deserved to be rebuked. Who are you to take these garments out of the, the, the box, out of the, the, the charity and whatnot and distribute? It's not yours to do. And... He says that Ali is indeed the Mawla, Allah has protected Ali, and Allah loves Ali. So stop complaining to me about Ali. Stop complaining to me about Ali. And he says that, uh, uh, and this is where he also says that, I'm leaving uh, behind me two things. As for the first of them, hold on to it, it is the book of Allah. And as for the second, Fear Allah with regards to my family. Fear Allah with regards to my family. Now it's very important here. He did not say, hold on to my family. He said, fear Allah with regards to my family. Meaning, make sure you treat them well. Make sure you treat them well. And you are hurting Ali and hurting Ali is hurting me. And all of this is legitimate and valid and we have no problems affirming all of these blessings. But the context is clear. The context is crystal clear, and that is why, simple point, when our Prophet passes away four months later, and the Sahaba are gathered together, none of them, including the supporters of Ali, mention Ghadir Khum. It wasn't in their minds that Ghadir Khum is about the Khilafah. It wasn't in their minds that Ghadir Khum is about who's going to be the next person in charge. It was simply in the context of what's going on, Stop irritating me about Ali. He is of my family. 
and he's done the right decision and you guys are wrong. And that's absolutely valid. Nothing there to, to basically read into. So this is the incident of um, Ghadir Khum. And as I said, from our perspective, it's all valid. It completely happened. But we don't read in. What don't we read in? Politics. We don't read in politics. And the Sahaba did not read in politics either. And this is of the blessings of Ali. So the final point we conclude with this, inshallah ta'ala, of the main benefits of the sermon of our Prophet ﷺ, obliterating all of the customs of Jahiliyyah, obliterating the ways of Jahiliyyah, and beginning with his own family to demonstrate the reality of what he is preaching. This is a new beginning for the rest of the Ummah. All old laws are gone under my foot and new laws of Islam will come. Our Prophet stressed the rights of the Muslims amongst each other, strengthening the ties of the Ummah. That was of paramount importance. If the Ummah was not united, then the Persian Empire would not be conquered in a few years. And the Roman Empire would not be carved into half. And the Muslims would not conquer half of the known world. That wouldn't happen. So he is preparing the foundation for the expansion of the Ummah. He is obliterating Jahili tribes and Jahili racism. These are the two main things that divide the Ummah to this day. We don't have tribes anymore, we have nation states. And we still have racism. Skin color, ethnicity, nation states, all of these. What are they? Figments of the imagination. He emphasized the rights of women. And most importantly, he left them with the primary source of law. He said, hold on to it. And that is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inshallah ta'ala. With that, we have gone very long today. But as you know, we are finishing up. So you're going to have to bear with me. And our last seerah uh, will be, inshallah ta'ala, this Saturday, 7 p.m. sharp. 7 p.m. sharp will be this Saturday, inshallah ta'ala. So uh, it will be an extra long. We'll be finishing up the episodes of the uh, seerah with the final uh, the, with the final sickness and then the uh, death of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I will see you then. Uh, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.